Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Listening to the Monday edition of the On the Tape podcast, I am Dan Nathan. I am joined in studio by Liz Young. Guy, that would be EY from SoFi. We're rolling. I mean, this is a Monday. A little misty out there. A little misty. It's a little misty. Summer's ending, if you guys caught the memo here a little bit. It just feels like it's getting a little crisp in the morning, a little crisp at night. I bumped into Liz on the beach over the weekend. Yes. Beach that you had bumped into. Same beach we bumped into each other on, Guy. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. What are the chances? We won't dox Liz, though. All right. But this is the Monday edition. And on the Monday edition, (laughs) we do a quick look back of some of the exciting things that might have happened on Friday when you did not catch us on the air over the weekend. And then we also do a little bit of a look ahead. I actually had a great conversation. I don't know why I said actually. I, I really did have a great conversation. I don't know why I said really. I had a great conversation you were involved. with it's Chad surprising. Anderson, who is the founding and managing partner at Space Capital. Guy, you've spoken to Chad Anderson in the I past. Did. He's also I actually author. was on a panel. I, I, you I moderated a panel. So Wait you, for it, Elizabeth. you did your joke. You, you did the thing with the space joke, the space movie joke, the E.T. thing that you mix up with 2001. Probably. Yeah. I love that whole genre of movies. But Elizabeth, get ready for this. What? I guess one could say that Dan was hanging with Chad. <laughs> uh, did that. All right, but really quickly, we had a great conversation. He has a okay. early stage venture firm investing in the space ecosystem. He wrote a book, The Space Economy, and it's not just sci-fi stuff. It's basically everyday products that we use and how they're interacting with the, the space economy. And it was actually okay. a fascinating conversation. The book's fascinating. We're actually going to do a giveaway for the book, the first 100 listeners who leave a review for the On The Tape podcast and the OK Computer podcast, because that conversation is going to be up on there. Take a screenshot of those, email them to contact at riskreversal.com, bug the heck out of AD, that would be Amanda Diaz, okay? And you'll get a copy of Chad's book. It was a great conversation. All right, guys, gal, this weekend, it was all about Jackson Hole, what was said, what was Mm -hmm. not said, but what was very clear was the messaging that rates are going to stay higher for longer. That doesn't come as a big um, surprise for us. But uh, the fact of the matter is that we've talked a lot about those 2022 inflation readings. We talked about where the CPI is right now. We talked about the fact last week, we spent some time talking about even a 3% is on top of the high single digits that we had in 2022. Bloomberg has this as the post-inflation challenges vex 
central bankers. They vex. They're terribly vexed, Liz. What does vexed uh, mean? If you guys remember the two thousand, remember the two thousand classic guy gladiator, and you probably watched this because it was meant to take place in your Rome in, in Rome, Italy, <laughs> back in the day. But you remember the scene where Commodus, who is the really difficult kind of Caesar, there, uh-huh. he says, "I'm vexed. I'm terribly vexed." Uh-huh. He was really pissed off about this, about something that happened here. Probably wasn't about inflation. Liz, talk to us. Are you vexed by inflation and what needs to be done to continue to battle? it and get it down to central bankers' targets. No, I'm not vexed. First okay. of all, isn't Guy Sicilian not He's half Sicilian. Thank you. Elizabeth, oh, okay. can I tell you right. something? How long have we been together now? The fact that you said that is fa- it's wonderful yeah. that you have acknowledged that there actually is there's a separation, there's a differentiation. So thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. No, I am not vexed by inflation. I think Jackson Hole, some of the, and I'm going to paraphrase Powell here a little bit. He said the process still has a long way to go. And there've been two months of lower readings, two months of core, if we look at core PCE, two months where they've felt like things are moving in the right direction, but two months do not a victory make. And he made that very clear as well. The other thing that I think was the biggest takeaway that people were speculating he might do was inch towards the idea that 2% is no longer the target. Mm -hmm. He did not do that. In fact, I think a couple different times he reiterated, we have no intention of moving away from this 2% target, which I'm glad he did. I know Guy and I have talked about that a few times over the last few weeks, that if they started to indicate 2% would no longer be the target, I think the interpretation of that is we no longer have the tools and we don't have control Mm -hmm. over it. So I'm glad that he reiterated that. The market swung pretty wildly. In fact, so wildly that I tweeted about it being down. And as soon as I tweeted about it being down, it went back up (laughs) and it ended the day positive. So it swung pretty wildly. I think what people were expecting, I know what people were expecting because there were surveys about it, was a hawkish message and a hawkish message they got, right? Yep. So then the reaction was, okay, what's the digestion of rates higher for longer? But I, I don't think there were any big surprises. In fact, I think a dovish message would have been worse. I think he continues to do what he needs to do. They all, listen again, for the thousandth time, I'm no fan, but I will say, I think Jerome Powell the last year and a half, two years, at least since it's actually coming up on two years, which is amazing. You know, November of 2021 is when they indicated they were going to start to move the other way in terms of interest rates, in terms of their balance sheet. I think he's done a really good job telling the story and sticking to his guns. Now, the problem obviously I have is not necessarily with him, but the market's interpretation. Now, technically, Dan, the fact that we traded down to about 4350-ish in the S&P last week, Again, that level was the prior high we made back in August of last year. So past resistance becomes support. We bounced off it. I guess it makes sense. I'm surprised by, again, the indicated strength this morning, but we'll let this sort of play itself out. Vexed? Are they vexed? I don't think the central bankers are vexed. I think the market is vexed by this lag effect that I heard a lot of people talking about over the weekend as well. And it's interesting. Some of the people that they interviewed talk about their, I guess, their inability or the fact that they were misguided in their judgment of how much liquidity was still sloshing around the system. And that's probably adding to and and making this lag effect last a little bit longer than a lot of people, including myself, thought. But it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And I think to a certain extent, we're seeing it around the edges. Again, what's interesting is these move in the bond markets. Now, again, you have two years significantly above 5%, that 10-year sticky around four and a quarter percent The inversion, which steepened to 60-something basis points, looks like it's, I don't know, as I'm looking at it this morning, probably in the 80s, 82, 83. I don't think the market knows what to do with the interest rates in the bond market right now, which means almost by definition, I'm puzzled myself, Liz. All right. So interestingly, you mentioned that two-year above 5%. Liz, when you think about just some of the issues that that, that caused, I, I think the, the last bout of fear in equity investors back in March is this regional banking crisis. SVB went down, a few others went down here. And you think about just how banks have acted over the last large, large money centers. Bank of America went from right before its earnings, I think about 28 or so dollars up to 33 bucks. And here we are now round trip that whole move. And mm-hmm. to me, the way a lot of like large banks act right now, it tells you that with rates going higher here, these held to maturity mark to market losses that they might have here are going to be kind of difficult. And the Fed signaling higher for longer just does guy the same thing, right? Where a, a lot of investors or a lot of people are going to start thinking about where they can get the best yield on their cash. Are we going to 
see when we get into October and we get into Q3 earnings? Are we going to see deposits going for higher yield? And are we going to see some of these banks having some big problems? Because I think the large money centers were meant to be the big recipients, I guess, of the regional banking and the capital flight and the ones that went under. But I think that already happened. The deposits already moved and people already took their money out of regular bank accounts, put it into money markets. Everybody caught that trend, right? Even investors that are not involved in the markets like we are started to figure out what a money market fund was and realize that it was paying a lot of money or try to figure out what, how do you buy a treasury bond, right? There's people that own treasury bonds that probably never expected to do such a thing. But I think you hit it on the head. When you look at the way that financials have traded, first of all, poorly, right? Pretty poorly. Mm -hmm. Banks in particular over the last month or so, and in particular during the time when the market was pulling back. I've talked about this a couple times. I don't think that this recent pullback was fear-induced. I don't think there was a a catalyst that made people afraid that the market was going to go down or that something terrible was going to happen. I think it was much more valuation-based and trying to right-size some of the multiples and understanding that, okay, we got overextended. Even the bulls thought we got overextended. So some of it was just giving back the run-up that had occurred. But the interesting part about financials was they weren't overvalued when this started, and they became less, even less so, as this went on. When you think about, number one, higher rates for longer You hit it on the head with the mark-to-market issues, right? Mm -hmm. They've only gotten worse, Mm -hmm. really, since March. And as rates go up and stay up, they will continue to get worse. But then there's this other side of it, which you'll hear as the optimistic side of banks, which is, okay, if the yield curve re-steepens and comes out of inversion, that's actually good for financials. Yes, it is. I completely agree with that. But we've got a long way to go. And to Guy's point, 80, I think we're 86 basis points inverted now today. Amazing. To get from 86 to zero, zero isn't where it's good for financials. You need it to be positively sloping. So there's a long path between here and there that I think is going to still be painful for a lot of sectors. Guy, you spent some time last week on the pod talking about the bear steepening. How, How do we get back? to like a zero, right? And then in what is, how does that happen? Okay, like for instance, because we're gonna talk about China in a second and it really seems like the deflationary readings there and all the stimulus that they're trying to do to prop up the property sector, the stock market and the like here, it's not working, at least through the transmission mechanism of the markets. One of the stories I I caught over Bloomberg this morning, this one is interesting, China's worsening economic slowdown is rippling across the globe here. So how does this inverted 210 get back to even and what does it mean for risk? assets. So, so I have the math for that, I think. At a certain point, two years, two-year yields will get anchored at a certain level. And it's probably, and I'm spitballing here, Elizabeth probably knows better than I do, but my sense is five and a quarter-ish maxes is out, I think, in terms of where the two-year goes. Now, here's the problem I also think, is that in order for it to get to zero, to get to flat, you're obviously going to need 10-year yields to move higher in a meaningful way. So the next question is, how does that happen? I don't think it's going to happen on the back of economic growth. So you're not, you don't have that working for you. What I think it's going to wind up happening is inflation is still a problem. And oh, by the way, the ECB is still struggling over there in terms of what they should do, whether they should fight inflation, which is bigger problem there than it is here, or try to help their economy, which is clearly in a slowdown. But coming back to here real quick, I think rates can go higher just on a supply and demand thing. And then the people's want and demand for higher yields to continue to buy our debt. And again, if what's happening in Japan is what I think is happening, I think they will continue to probably be a seller of our treasuries. You have to ask yourself who the incremental buyer is. And that incremental buyer is going to demand a higher yield to purchase our debt, which should theoretically drive bond yields higher. And under those set of circumstances, again, I think it's not particularly favorable for other risk assets like stocks. One of the other inversions that we don't talk about very often, I know we obsess over this twos, tens inversion. There's something called the near-term forward spread. I think I've probably mentioned it before. This is what the Fed watches. The near-term forward spread is the three-month yield today versus the three-month yield 18 months from now, or the market's expectation for the three-month yield 18 months from now. It originally inverted back in November of 2022. It has stayed inverted ever since. It sniffed on inversion in March, but never really made it above. So now it's re-steepened a bit, but it's still inverted about 82 basis points. That is something that the Fed is going to watch. I know they're watching. It's something that they use to predict whether or not there's a recession on the horizon. So they know whether they say it out loud or not, they know that a recession is possible and maybe more possible than it was before. This is something that as this part comes uninverted, and I think this will probably re-steepen faster 
than the twos tens, but this will inflict pain as well. And if you look at just what's happened, even over the last four months since May or so, it's re-steepened pretty steadily. And over the last month or so, it's re-steepened more quickly. I don't think it's any coincidence that stocks have felt the pain of that because what's happening is the market starts to expect that we're going to see cuts within the next 18 months. And the reason for those cuts, as we've pointed out many times, probably not going to be good. I think it's probably a fantasy to assume that the Fed's going to be able to just slowly unwind this, slowly come down to neutral. And now we don't even really know what neutral is. Yeah, no, we don't. It's interesting that you talked about the volatility during this speech on Friday, summer Friday, one of the last ones that we got here and, and probably liquidity pretty pretty weak. But the fact that we're like up 50 basis points right now in the S&P 500 is just funny. This higher for longer, it's so, sooner or later, it just it doesn't jive with equity valuations where they are. A lot of us on this pod over the last year or so, we've been talking about valuation almost foolishly in hindsight because it really hasn't mattered. But I guess the point that we've made on many occasions is that when the Fed digs signal that they're going to raise rates to battle inflation in late 2021, the hardest hit stuff was the highest valuation stuff, the stuff that had no earnings support. So I just feel like at some point we have to have that sort of, and maybe it's into Q3 earnings as we get into October or so, but that has to happen. And I think that when we talk about some of these big mega cap names and just how they've cooled off over the last month and a half or so, really since mid-July, and you look at NVIDIA's reaction to open up 10% after its earnings, which was just gangbusters. We all knew it was going to be. But the fact that it sold off 10% from those highs, it tells me that we might be in for that coming this fall, especially if guys' two-year two yield gets anchored at five and a quarter. And then we start seeing a weakening tenure based on growth based on what's going on in China. And, and I want to segue here to this Commerce Secretary, uh, Gina Raimondo, over in China and talking about just U.S. and Chinese trade. And here was a quote from a Bloomberg article, we'll put us all in the show notes. She's stressing the importance of strong economic ties between the world's two biggest economies and just saying that this is all, a lot of the trade policy is not about national security, which we know is not exactly the case here. And it's funny, Guy, as you would say, this woman is a bit of a badass. She was the first uh, woman to go to the LaSalle Academy. It was an all-boys Catholic school, okay? She went and graduated uh, from Harvard College, magnum cum laude. She was the governor, the first governor of Rhode Island, and often thought to be like a really centrist Democrat. And she was, I think, considered for a whole host of posts in the Biden administration. And I just wonder, as the debate about Biden, the debate right. about the vice president, how they shore up this ticket, I wonder if she's being elevated a little bit because her going over to China right now this is a pretty tense time. We spent a lot of time talking about what could happen as far as boycotts and just a whole host of economic sanctions if the Chinese were to do something with Taiwan. But this is a very high profile visit, guy. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm correcting you only to make a joke. If she were the first governor of Rhode Island, she'd be old as shit. So I think she's probably <laughs> first the female, female governor of Rhode Island. Okay. Jacob was going to edit that guy. And now we got this. Well, now he doesn't, now he doesn't have to. Yeah. I think this is the fourth person that we've tried it out there. And it's all folly if you think about it. Janet Yellen, Blinken was out there. She's out there. Somebody else whose name escapes me. Oh, I think John Kerry was out there as well. We continue to do that because our reliance upon the relationship we have with China, I totally get it. But one one thinks by definition, that's going to make the Chinese acquiesce. And I don't think that's going to happen. And as their economy continues to sort of slow down, and they find themselves in the situation that they find themselves in. You know, I think the likelihood of something bad happening is greater, not lesser. When you back somebody into a corner, it's typically when they fight the hardest. And I think that's might be happening with the Chinese. So maybe we'll get some sort of couple day detente in terms of the rhetoric, but it's not going away. And I still think the reason why you see so many people go over there is because our relations with the Chinese are probably the worst they've been in decades. In terms of her status, I don't disagree with you. And we obviously don't want to get into the politics of this whole thing. But it's clear that there, I think the party is trying to elevate certain people as sort of a dress rehearsal for, I don't know, I don't want to say inevitabilities, but potential different outcomes in the spring of next year. Yeah. So Liz, what he's talking about, you're watching The Diplomat on the Netflix, you mm, know, the no, uh, Felicity. I'm, I'm really she, bad at she, Oh, really? Without yeah. any spoilers, here's a woman who's been a little dress rehearsal for a VP sure. slot guy. Is that what you're going to? You know, I, listen, bit? I put it out there and you, I put the ball on the tee. And then, by yeah. the way, speaking of balls on a tee, yeah. the Yankees could really use a couple <laughs> balls on a tee because, balls. holy shit, you hear old dudes say this all the time. It's funny because when I was a kid, the old men was, I could hit 
shit, the guy's hitting 180. I could do that, which is dumb. <laughs> and now I find myself doing a little bit. You're similar. one of the old guys. Yeah. yeah. First of all, when you think about what's happening next year, we're going to talk about an election yeah. all year ad nauseum. We're right? talking about it now. Right. And, and just think once the nominations go, but yeah. leading up to the nominations, yeah. I'm tired already of talking about it. That's going to change things. It's going to change or at least put things on pause, right? Maybe China waits for the next person to come into office. Yeah. But I'm guessing that if this tension stays as it is, and, and I'll, I'll paraphrase Guy, if tensions are as high as they've been or our relationship has been as bad as it's ever been, then the next person in the White House is going to matter to China. And they might wait. They might push yeah. things off until that occurs. But it all is this lead up to what's going to happen next fall. And the other thing is we're going to talk about the yield curve. We're going to talk about the Fed. We're going to talk about earnings for the rest of this year. The reality is once we get into spring-ish of next year, there's not much else that's going to matter besides what's happening in the election. And we're going to talk about Democrats and Republicans in the White House and how that affects the market. Yeah. And it, spoiler alert, it doesn't. But either way, the tide is going to shift. The topics of conversation are going to change. And I think what happens this fall in the economy and in the market is going to matter a lot for who makes it into the nominations next spring. Yeah, and I think part of this is all, is also this idea of deglobalization. And so it's interesting that one of her remarks is like it was not like some of the tensions are not a matter of national security as it relates to the economics. And that's clearly not the case because when you think about this, there's an article in Bloomberg this morning, Apple's iPhone supply chain splinters under U.S.-China tensions. And we think about just a lot of these U.S. multinationals who relied on China for cheap manufacturing. They've oriented their supply chains there. And then they become reliant on their consumers to buy their products. And so you've had this rising middle class and you think about what's going on. The Chinese have been building these ghost cities, trying to get people out of the farms, into the cities for manufacturing. And now it's going the other way. And this article is really interesting. It was talking about in 2012, no Apple related suppliers operated out of India. Now the country is home to 14 of them. So it says the new iPhone 15 will be the first model to ship directly from India just weeks after it starts leaving factories in China. And I think this is really interesting because the main point is that if if you have to reorient your supply chains, if you have to make new factories, if you go to places where, let's say, labor is not as cheap, that's inflationary. Or it's a hit to U.S. multinationals to their earnings. If you think about Apple that has a 40-some percent gross margin, they literally have 90% of the gross margin in the entire smartphone business. Think about that. A lot of their competitors don't make really any money on their hardware. And they do because they've been able, Tim Cook, this is this is his opus, what he was able to create in China over the last 20 years. And so I don't know if that's going away. There's a lot of inflationary aspects of that. And they could also weigh on US corporate earnings. All right, guys, before we get out of here, we're not done with earnings yet. And I think some of the volatility that we saw around some of these retailers, we saw that move out of Dick's. There's a whole host of names that just really were eye popping if you thought of the way that they were just baby with the bathwater. We have a uh, Best Buy guy tomorrow, Tuesday, pre-opening. This stock had a big move off of its lows. I think maybe people are getting all geeked up about back to school. It's given a lot of that back over the last couple of weeks. So it's down in sympathy with a lot of these. Later in the week, we're going to have Lululemon. This one's interesting because it's more of a higher end. Just by the way, when I saw Liz, she was decked out in Lulu, like head to toe, like literally. <laughs> and a keep, Yankees hat. Keep guy. keeping that place afloat here. Guy, talk to us <laughs> about what we might see. And also Dollar Gen, which I know Dollar Tree, that was not particularly great. We came into earnings season in mid-July with some enthusiasm about what the banks had to say. We are limping out of it with the mega cap techs in not acting particularly great and then retail very disappointing. So let's look at Best Buy real quick. The all-time high again, like many stocks, was the fall of 2021, I think in November to be exact. And I think the stock was north of 140. It's been cut in half since. So here are your levels. I think the October low of last year was about $61 or so. That is support. You're in this downtrend from the aforementioned November level. To your point, Dan, we traded up recently and failed. The high in February is about 90. So you keep making lower highs. The last high was, I think, about 83 or so. That's not particularly good. And you're in this little bit of a pennant formation. I think in terms of trading the stock, let the price be your guide. I happen to think it's probably going to test that 61 level, and I think you take a shot there. Other people think we've sold off enough where you can play for the breakout to the upside. I am not one of those people. In terms of what it means for the consumer, I'm not necessarily sure. And I think the consumer behavior and the patterns of the consumer are changing right before our very eyes. And there was a time where Best Buy obviously won to all of this. I don't necessarily think they do in this environment, Dan. 
Liz, retailers, what's your takeaway? First of all, just anecdotally, I think it's funny that people do back to school shopping at Best Buy today because when I did back to school shopping, yes. it was like at Kmart. Yeah, and then notebooks and yeah. pencils. And now back to school shopping and, yeah. is tablets and yeah, the kids everything today. electronic yeah. spoiled. Anyway, retailers. So I think retailers, number one, are still probably benefiting from the fact that consumers are still spending. But the interesting part is that retail stocks have not traded very well, even in the face of consumer sentiment and consumer confidence that has gone up and seen a big rebound on the heels of cooling inflation and a higher stock market. So the market is sniffing something out in retail and saying, much like I think is what's happening in banks, sniffing something out and saying, this is at risk, right? This is at risk for a, a change in direction. This is something that, and particularly retailers, can change on a dime. Mm -hmm. Consumer confidence, as we've seen, has reversed directions very easily. It can go the other way, again, very easily. As long as the labor market is strong, consumers will spend money. Retail stocks can probably chug along. But also remember what we're doing here. Some of those retailers, yes, back to school is a big tailwind usually. Now we've got this kind of pause, but then come end of October, we're going to start talking about holiday spending. Guy, I will not exercise you today with what happens when the big man comes in December to the stock market. Uh, no, but please, we're oh, going to start talking please about don't, that. Please don't, listen, hold, can I just, I, I don't mean to stop you, <laughs> but if I hear the phrase term, I can't even utter it myself, but the big man rally, uh, that's, that's going to be. But you're going to, it, you're going well, that's funny. Believe. There are certain there are certain anchors that just love that stuff. They can't <laughs> help themselves. Happy Hump Day, yeah. Santa Claus rally. It's I want Melissa to likes to do that like right after she does Halloween. The guy right after Halloween. That's what I mean. Go Come on. November, yeah. we're going to yeah. start talking about that. And it's not so much I think this year about the absolute level of spending that will happen. It's going to be about the relative level of spending. Have consumers yeah. pulled back despite stronger economic data, despite what's happened with inflation? And has have companies now suffered because inflation is lower, so revenue is lower? Yeah. We're going to find out. And then, and then we have the student loan repayment starting in October, and that, I think, is going to be a real curveball. Last thing, and I'll just round this out here. So Salesforce reports Wednesday after the close, and this one is really interesting to me also because we talked about that July 18th and 19th when a lot of the mega cap stocks announced, Microsoft announced their co-pilot pricing tools and, and the stock rallied sharply. And then it has really since sold off pretty dramatically over the last month and a half or so. Salesforce was also one of those names, introduced some products and some pricing that week. And it's down about 10% from those levels. It's broken the uptrend. The stock was trading at 125 bucks at the end of last year. It got as high as 240 or so in mid to late July and then had that reversal. So technically it's broken. We know this is expensive of stock. And really, if there's just any hiccups in this one guy, this thing is going to be on its way back to that 200-day moving average down there at 185, in my opinion. Valuation for the stock was not a concern when valuations didn't matter at all. And again, as I mentioned earlier, it's not coincidental that Salesforce CRM made its all-time high, like many stocks, in November of 2021. And to your point, Dan, that stock went from north of 310, I think, down to that sort of 125 level in a very precipitous way. The bounce has been decent, obviously, since December, but now, unfortunately, it got itself expensive, I think, again. You can make a case for this stock on valuation all through the fall of 2022, earlier this year. I don't think you can make the same case now, especially with interest rates where they are. Yeah, so this is one I think that's going to be really important on what could be a quiet week in the stock market. All right, EY from SoFi, you guys like to say, get your money right all in one app. You can get all your trading right all in one podcast right here yeah. on the tape. You see what I did there, Guy? Uh, Guy Dami, bright and early. And we have a really fun sort of thing going on today. We're going to find our way up at the Sirius XM SR studio. Liz is going to be our guest in studio. That's market call 844-942-7866. Every Monday at noon, you can call in, you can pick our brains. Liz is going to be there with us today on Monday. Probably going to be listening to this after that, but just as a little reminder, we do that every Monday and hopefully Liz will join us more. And then also stick around for my conversation with Chad Anderson of Space Capital, the author of The Space Economy. Get your free book by leaving reviews for these podcasts and then email a screenshot to contact at riskversal.com. So thanks a lot, everybody. Stick around for my conversation with Chad. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts 
with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group microcontracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. I'm here joined by the founder and managing partner of Space Capital. That would be Chad Anderson. Chad, welcome to the off the tape edition of On the Tape. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. So we met through our fine partners at iConnections here. And it's really interesting. Guy and I spend a lot of time talking to folks, trading public markets. We've done a lot of credit stuff this year, which is really interesting because that's something that's bubbling up here a little bit. We talked to a lot of private market investors in the VC space, and a lot of them obviously have found their ways in and around some of the buzziest themes in the markets over the last few years. You know what they are. It's some Web3 stuff. It's some AR, VR. It's some gaming. It's obviously now generative AI. But you you have built a firm, okay, on an area that I think is fascinating to most people, but they don't think about it from an investment standpoint, at least in the public markets, because there are not too many ways to do it. But Space Capital is an early stage venture firm focused on something that you think is going to be a mega trend. You think that like in 10 years from now and on the tape, we are going to be talking about many publicly traded companies in and around this ecosystem, if you will, a little bit. So I want to talk about all that. We want to talk about your book, The Space Economy, Capitalize on the Greatest Business Opportunity of Our Lifetime. That's a catchy tagline, if you will. And we're going to talk about how you, our listener, can get a free copy of this book. So stick around for that because I've been digging into it and it's really fascinating. I love the fact that, yeah, there's some cool sci-fi stuff in there, but it really is about investing in this mega trend. Welcome, Chad. Thank you. It's great to be here and great to be talking about one of the topics that we are passionate about and see a lot of opportunity in. Yeah. So let's take a step back here because it looks like your LinkedIn is a mile long about the amount of companies that you were advising in the space. And obviously those are companies that you've invested in and the like here. How did you get focused on this sector and how did you build a company in and around investing in it? And and when you think about a venture firm, you have to go out and sell your expertise to investors to raise capital and let them believe that you see something that a lot of other folks don't. So let's talk about your background and how you got to the founding of Space Capital. I didn't follow a direct path. I was finance and economics undergrad and I have an MBA. While I was at business school, I was studying under a great professor, Mark Ventresca, who I talk about in the book. He had a great influence on me. He teaches at Stanford and Oxford and he talks about nascent markets and how they develop, right? So think about the horse and buggy going to the automobile, the ice industry, this happened many times throughout history, that a market is very limited. And that's because there are high barriers to entry. Those barriers to entry are removed in floods this wave of new entrants, entrepreneurship, and innovation. And that's exactly what we've seen happen play out in space over the last decade plus. But back in 2012, it was all very new. SpaceX had just launched their first customer a couple of years before. That year, they launched the space station and did something that only three 
global superpowers had ever done before. And here a private company was doing it. I, I recognized that the same things were playing out. I did the homework to understand, is this a flash in the pan or is this actually like a structural change that's happening? Is this what we've seen in these countless other industries before? And the early data, the data that I pulled together on investments, where it was going, who was investing, what were they investing in? All of that was compelling enough to me to decide that I was going to build a fund focused on this area. But back then, there wasn't enough deal flow or investor interest to support a fund. So I stayed in the UK, helped them stand up an innovation center that was focused on growing the space sector in the country, built out my networks, learned a lot about what was going on. And then I did that during the day. And then at night, I was hustling and building this fund on US hours. 2015, there's finally enough going on. I, I moved to New York and we launched our first fund. And back then, the investors weren't tripping over themselves to invest in this category, right? It still was like very unknown known and very new. Let's just take a step back. Yeah. So in, in 2012, Facebook had just gone public, right? Twitter was ready to go public. If you were an adventure investor in the prior 10 years, right, between Web 1.0, let's call it 1.5 or so, you were finally getting paid, right, on all those kind of social sorts of things. So it's funny when you think about the tech community from an investment standpoint was focused on the things that fit on your iPhone for all intents and purposes and connect yeah, you with people yeah. and help you buy things and post things in this and that, whatever. And you were looking out 10, 20 years ahead at that point. If you think about these massive sort of industry shifts, right? They come along every so often. You've got to be ready for it when it happens. And that's what I saw playing out. This is a monumental shift today. There is no doubt that space technology is critical national infrastructure. It is providing information to enterprises and governments. And in uncertain economic times like we're in right now, enterprises and governments want more information, not less. So all this data that's coming off these space-based assets is only becoming increasingly more important, um, more ingrained in our everyday lives. And it's the invisible backbone that powers our global economy. So this is a massive opportunity. It's much more than just rockets and and satellites. Yeah, so I, I want to hear about that a little bit too, because obviously there's some folks who, who made big bets on rockets, reusable rockets, and the satellite thing seems massive. I, last year on the pod, we had Kevin Wheel from uh, Planet Inc. on, and we were listening a little bit about, like every time I talk to somebody who's deep in the space ecosystem, I'm just fascinated at the level of development, like how many satellites are going up every day to enable all of these different processes down here. And I think it's one of those things that I think most investors are just really not focused on whatsoever because this is all happening underneath, you know what I mean, above the surface, but really below, I, I think from an investment standpoint, because there's not a whole heck of a lot of ways for everyday investors to participate a, a bit. And so I want to talk a little bit about that, but let's go back to on your Twitter. It's your pinned tweet. This is you meeting King Charles in July and it's some space event there. So you obviously, you went to Oxford, okay? So what is the connection? Because I don't think people think of England or the United Kingdom as a leader in space. And just this morning, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, I got a, a notification that India, there was a lunar landing, and this comes days or, or maybe weeks after a Russian lander was supposed to like crash. And the language that they used, the Russians used about the crash, crash is just a simple word in America. Maybe it just in the English language, it doesn't translate to Russian, but they had some other funny way of doing it. A lot of stuff's going on, but I don't think of the English at the forefront of this. Or, or am I wrong? Maybe from an academic standpoint? There are certainly shifting winds amidst the national superpowers in space, for sure. And yeah, India touched down literally, it was 10 minutes before I walked down here to the studio. So that just happened this morning. And that's a- Did you get all geeked up about ah, that? It's a, it's a big it? deal. Yeah, 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 it's huge. Yeah. And what's so interesting about that too, is that India, they crashed on the moon several years ago, and this is their follow-up mission to that. And we were all pretty excited because I got really close last time. And so to see them we, we were all very excited and hopeful that they were going to get it this time. And so they took a measured approach, you know, they launched to the moon, they took their time, got their spacecraft into orbit, did some orbits first, and then slowly went down to the surface. They launched like a couple months ago. And then Russia was in a race to get there first. And so they took the more direct route. And they literally were like, they launched way later. And then they were trying to touch down a couple of days before India and beat them there which is strange, but okay, like national prestige just still plays into this. This is their first mission that they launched in 50 years. And they basically went a straight shot, like straight to the moon, straight to the surface, and bang, they crashed into it. What, what, what's driving this newfound interest in the moon? It's, it, it, like I'm 50 years old, and I just remember growing up in the 70s and early 80s, there was this fascination with NASA and what we were able to accomplish. And it was very much ingrained in the kind of Cold War sort of thesis, right, if you will. But we just forgot the moon. So why is it that every 
every nation or, or major developed nations are rushing to get back to the moon 50 years on or so because it just seems kind of odd that we were able to do it with the technology that is, I, I have 100x the technology in my iPhone than, than, than the landers that landed on it. So what, what's going on here with the moon? We haven't been back for 50 years and it's so interesting to look at the U.S. space program and look at how the global space program and how we went from nothing in orbit to a satellite in orbit to a humans in orbit and spacewalking and then landing on the moon. And then we've been regressing ever since. And it's this kind of really interesting idea that technology, like we take it for granted that it's just going to continually improve and improve upon itself, but it doesn't because of the law of entropy. If you don't continue to nurture it, it will go away. We're right now, we are just realizing how the Romans made their concrete that was self-healing. There's countless examples of technology that goes away if you don't stay on top of it and continue to nurture it. And that's what happened in the space program and the U.S. space program. And we, I talk about it quite a bit in the book about the rise and fall and rebirth of U.S. space ambitions. Understanding the American space program is really easy once you understand the secret code is political will. And there was a lot of political will back then. When we landed on the moon, we essentially won the space race. Then all that sort of motivation went away. Technology has advanced quite a bit. And so it's not the days of essentially shooting a cannonball towards the moon, which is like insane to think about how they did it with the technology of the day. But what's really underpinning this new interest in the moon today is similar ambitions, right? Is that it's the ultimate high ground from a DOD perspective. The US and China are racing to go to the moon and they are both racing to the South Pole where the Indians just landed. And the reason for that is because we have orbiting satellites that have found water ice deposits. And this is super important. On the South Pole, it basically gets sunlight all the time. So it's a source of power and energy. And then there's water ice deposits, which you can harvest and split into oxygen and hydrogen, used for fuel, used for life support. So the idea is to set up a permanently crewed outpost on the South Pole of the moon, similar to the International Space Station, which has been in orbit for 20 years, right? But it'll be an outpost that's on the lunar surface. What's the longest an astronaut had spent time on the moon back, back then? It was a very short period of time. This is going to be completely different. Yeah. yeah. And it'll be like a rotating crew. They won't go and live there for years on end to start. And actually, we're not even going to start with humans. We're starting with robotic precursor missions. So all of this is being underpinned by NASA's Artemis program. They have committed billions of dollars to, to establish this outpost. Robotic precursor missions are launching later this year and early next year. We've got two companies in our portfolio. One is a rover and infrastructure company that's launching in five months from now. By the way, the title for first commercial lander on the moon is still up for grabs. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. And we've got another company that's Lunar Outpost. And then next year, we've got Astrobotic. Astrobotic is carrying NASA's largest robotic payloads to the surface that are going to do the initial scouting. And then they've got plans to, to lay out infrastructure, right? Their lander lands, it unfurls its solar panels, it becomes a power station, the first power station on the moon. It's got a comms link back to Earth, and they've got a Wi-Fi capability. So any of their payloads that are that they're taking, then now they're the first telco on the moon. They're setting up um, a power grid to harvest solar energy and also power the initial infrastructure on the moon. There's some really interesting robotic precursor missions in the lead up to humans. All right. So let's take a step back here, because this is kind of interesting. If you think about like the contractors that did all of those sorts of things on a tiny scale 50 years ago or in the 60s and the 70s in the lead up to like a lot of these big missions, they were like Raytheon. There were these massive like companies here. These are all VC backed companies that for the most part that you've just described here. So these are smaller private companies that have taken venture capital to get to the moon for all intents and purposes. So when you think about that, are you seeing levels of innovation that could not exist under let's say the, the predecessors like initiatives? I guess SpaceX is the a perfect example in a way. When you think about the, the kind of advancements they were able to make here, it might have taken a bit longer if that was under a government program working with a government contractor. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. Never underestimate what just lower cost and easier access will do to stimulate innovation. That's why India is able to do what they were able to do this morning and why many other countries are setting up space agencies and why there is so many new entrants and so many new companies innovating and innovating with technology and innovating with business models is because um, SpaceX has done exactly that. NASA spending billions of dollars on their lunar missions. The Indian Space Agency apparently was spending, I think they spent $75 million on this mission. It's insane to think about. So are they working with a lot of like private entities? And you use the, the the term efficiency. The whole idea is if you are a private venture back firm, is like you don't have unlimited capital. You have to be, right? So like you have to be more efficient in how you deploy that capital. 
look, the, SpaceX is, there's a lot of fascination with SpaceX and for good reason. The only reason we're even talking about space as an investment category is because of SpaceX, right? We've been operating in space for decades. Um, but it has been a, before SpaceX, it was a very limited market. On the one hand, you had NASA government on one side as the sole customer. And on the other side, you had a handful of defense contractors. And that was it. Very limited market, very high barriers to entry. SpaceX came in and with their initial launch, they significantly lowered the cost of getting to orbit. They just published it on their website. You could buy a launch on their website. And suddenly there wasn't any black box, you know, of the cartel that was previously pricing this based on whatever they felt like. It was $60 million. So you could buy a launch, right? And then brokerage services came in and were like, oh, hey, can we just buy the whole thing and then divvy it up? And also they published their pricing and suddenly you could launch a small satellite for $250,000. And so this really changed the game, right? They removed those barriers to entry. And we've now seen over the last 10 years, we've seen $80 billion of investment capital into the space economy. And put that's that across 1,800 companies. Put that in some context here, if we think about this, because right now, $280 billion, okay? And the funny thing about space is it literally is an unlimited TAM, right? If you think about it. So it's very different. Like when you look at terrestrial sort of businesses, you can model out a whole host of things, how many people there are on the planet. The thing about space is it's literally unlimited, right? Like we we don't know what, what the like the long tails of this sort of thing are. You mentioned this in the book, the space economy, and I think this is really interesting that 90% of the value from the space economy comes from satellites. Okay. So that's the gateway drug, if you will, to the space economy. Like try to put some context around that right now, the, the amount of launches that are happening and what that opens the door for. What is the things that you guys are investing in such an early stage that you see that investors who listen to this are going to have access to these sorts of end markets in the not so distant future from a, from an investment standpoint. When most people think about space, they think about all the things we've been talking about, the Apollo moon landings, the International Space Station, like these grand human achievements. But what people normally don't think about is the technology that is underpinning the world's largest industries, multi-trillion dollar industries today. It is the invisible backbone of the world's largest industries. And so if you divvy up that 280 billion, you've got 9% of that is going to launch and you've got 1% going to what we call emerging industries. This is like lunar transportation, logistics in orbit, understanding where debris is, cleaning it up, manufacturing, a lot of the stuff that the media likes to talk about. It makes up 1% of the overall value in the space economy. So this is interesting, fun to talk about. There are some opportunities, but 90% of the value in the space economy today comes from satellites. GPS, geospatial intelligence, satellite communications. GPS is the most advanced. It has already generated trillions of dollars and economic value and some of the largest venture outcomes that we've ever seen. So we think that GPS provides a playbook for how new investment opportunities are going to be created. GPS was built by the government for the government and military purposes. It's actually off limits to anyone else by design until companies like Trimble, Garmin, and others built these commercial receivers to receive the signal and make it really easily accessible to the tech community, who then built applications on top of this really valuable signal. And that's location-based services, the bread and butter of the mobile industry and everything that we use and all of the apps that powers all of our daily behaviors and all of enterprise today is location based services. This is a massive TAM. We're talking in the T trillions of dollars of TAM for positioning services, right? And this is only getting better. We are improving the GPS signal through hardware and software, and it's unlocking new applications in autonomous vehicles are going to rely on this. The era of spatial computing with Apple and its new headset is powered by precise positioning and also geospatial intelligence. Think about it. If GPS is the dot on the map, geospatial intelligence is the map. And we've gone from hand-drawn maps to then digital information overlaid on top of these maps. And we're now moving to a place where we've got mixed reality in this era of spatial computing, where we're overlaying digital information on top of the physical world. All of this is underpinned by space technology as well. And then you've got satellite communications. Satellite communications has been around for a long time. But what's happening now with SpaceX and their Starlink satellites and Amazon and their Project Kuiper, they're launching massive constellations of low Earth orbit satellites that are connecting the most remote places on the planet. And they're doing it at bandwidth and latency and cost that competes directly with fiber, which is crazy. Soon you are going to be able to go wherever you want in the world, camping, hiking, on your backpacking trip through Bhutan and you're going to have full bars. Like you're not even going to think about it. And that unlocks all kinds of new applications. All the stuff that we were just talking about. Autonomy, need to be connected. Crews just had half of their vehicles pulled off the road because they lost connectivity, right? But if you think about mission critical 
operations, remote operations, mining, aquaculture. So here's the, here's what I want to go to, right? And this was, there's a fact, I'm sure you read this. It was the New York Times last month. It was Elon Musk's unmatched power in the stars, okay? And it was really talking about Starlink. It was talking about the influence that he has over Star, the influence that he has over the largest shooting war that we've had, okay, in, in Europe, obviously, since World War II. And so I find it pretty fascinating. And this is one where if, if this is a really nascent industry, then we haven't really really defined regulation. We haven't defined global cooperation. There's a whole host of things that are going to happen when you think about how large the stakes are to all the examples that you just gave. I feel like this is going to be, this is going to be the biggest issue in the near term is where the power is consolidated. One man has all the voting rights to a $140 billion company, which is SpaceX, which is sending rockets, it seems, every month up to the space station. It's reliant on government contracts. It's, it, it has a lot of obviously sway with the private economy. They have 4,500 satellites. This is Starlink up. I think that's the most, right? Of, of obviously, easily, without, a doubt. without a doubt. And they keep sending them up. So think about how this one man can be influenced by nations, right? By powerful private sector influences. This is like the Bond villain of all Bond villains, if you will. If you think about every Bond villain, they have some plan to do this and they have some interest here and there. How does he go unchecked, if you will, because this article goes into great length how he turned on Starlink, okay, over Ukraine, and that's helped their military capabilities dramatically, but he won't allow it to be over Crimea, which is what Russia suggests that they control based on their invasion 10 years ago. And it's just interesting to me, this man has control over those satellites, which it could actually dictate the future of of Europe, if you think about it. So talk to me a little bit about that. Do you guys spend a lot of time thinking about that? Because I'm sure you are invested in companies that are doing state-of-the-art stuff. They're trying to keep under wraps for the most part. And they obviously their success could have a lot to do with like public market Im- implications, you know what I mean? Or very private ones, you know what I mean? That intelligence agencies first here, but also abroad are going to be very interested in. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot there. A lot, no, lot, lo- lot there. Loaded question here. And I know you you have to be careful as you think about this as somebody who is invested in all different parts of this. And SpaceX, I'm sure, is probably a great partner to a lot of companies or likely could be an acquirer or could be a whole host of things for companies in your portfolio. The Russian invasion of Ukraine put a spotlight on the growing capabilities of commercial space companies, without a doubt. It was SpaceX's Starlink satellites that kept them connected. And it was companies like Earth Observation Companies, some of which are in our portfolio that were providing a ground truth of what was actually happening on the ground. So Russia would come out and say, hey, we did this. And everyone would be like, yeah, no, you didn't because we're looking at pictures and that's not what happened. As these satellites are going right over. That's right. It's really changed the game. And that's what I said earlier, that it's all about data from orbital assets. It gives us this unique global perspective, unique global connectivity and ability that we've not had before at a pace and a revisit rate and like in a timely timeliness in a, in a way that we've never had before. At the moment, SpaceX is the only game in town. They're the only game in town when it comes to launch. They're the only game in town when it comes to Starlink. And they've done a lot of good. Like I said, the NASA program was in decline. We had peaked and we were now riding off into the sunset. It's SpaceX that came in that is enabling NASA to do more with limited budgets. SpaceX has pushed us farther in the last 10 years than... And, yeah, than, but limited budgets, but without the contracts from the government, they don't have the revenue coming in and the mission. You know, like To me, I just think it's really interesting because, yeah, they've basically just stealing from Peter to pay Paul over here. And they've created a situation where Elon is now the richest man in the world, both from the the subsidies and the contracts that he's gotten from not just SpaceX, but also Tesla. And I guess one of the things that I I guess I'm just most focused on, and again, I'm not trying to get you to opine on it one way or another, but we have a situation where the richest man in the world has control over some of the most important assets on the planet. And just to use a Russian phrase, what if there's a little compromise here? You You know what I mean? Like, it's a really dangerous situation situation, in my opinion, which makes him probably the most dangerous person on the planet. NASA has wants to do some things and they don't have the money to do it. The only like they put it out to bid. They put it out to industry and everyone bids on it. SpaceX is the only one that won the human lander initially program to land NASA back on the moon because they were the only ones that could do it within the cost constraints. But they're not doing this in a vacuum. They live stream everything. Right. So like other people can compete with them. It would be great if others did on the launch side on the satellite 
communication side, Amazon Kuiper is far along in development. It'll be great when there's more competition in launch and in satcom. When Amazon Kuiper comes online, that's going to be a, a similar but different capability that is going to give customers some options. We're in a situation right now where Russia and China are snipping undersea cables, right? That's a real concern for places like Taiwan. Taiwan is concerned about Elon's ties with China. They don't want to be reliant on Starlink because they're seeing what's happening in Ukraine, exactly like you just mentioned. And they're saying, when it hits the fan, we don't want to be in a situation where we are reliant on somebody who has done this sort of thing in the past. Will Kuiper help with that? Probably. There's also some regional players, some newer venture-backed players that have regional satellites that sit in geostationary or orbit, which means that it just it rotates with the Earth and stays over one point, provides connectivity. There, There is competition coming and that'll be very welcome. It can't come fast enough because the point about Elon is multifold. You think about it, he bought Twitter for $44 billion in the name of free speech, but yet he cozies up to the most totalitarian regime on the planet because he wants access to not just their manufacturing in China for Tesla vehicles, but also rare earth materials for their batteries. And he also wants access to this rising middle class that is buying lots of EVs. The other point is Starlink with Taiwan. And it's a really complicated case that doesn't end particularly well, I think, for Elon. So the competition can't come fast enough. All right, let's talk a little little bit before we get out of here, Chad. And this is, we could, I think we could talk for hours. I'm sure you're probably the most interesting guy at most cocktail parties here because no one really gives a crap what I think about this market or that market or this or whatever, not at a cocktail party. Everyone loves talking about this stuff because in our lifetimes, if you think about all the stuff that we grew up as far as sci-fi, except the Star Wars stuff, a lot of it's like actually happening right now. You're investing in companies that may sound sci-fi to normies right here, but you are fairly well convinced a lot of the technology that they're working on right now in 20 or 30 years might be something that we all become very used to or relying on that sort of thing. So talk to us a little bit about your strategy at Space Capital. And also, again, a lot of our listeners, they might have the ability to invest in a venture fund. Are there going to be some vehicles in which a a lot of everyday investors are going to have access to? Because again, if this is one of the biggest opportunities in technology over the next 20 years or so, it seems that there better be an opportunity for investors to get early access as like some of your LPs have is space capital. Where we are today is our tagline is that in the same way that every company today is a technology company, every company of tomorrow will be a space company. And what we mean by that is that in the 90s, technology was new, right? There was a handful of technology stocks and you could diversify your portfolio into technology, right? That moniker like has lost all of its meaning because technology is ubiquitous in everything that we do. And the same thing is happening with space technology today. Think about where we are in the development of all this, right? SpaceX launched their first customer a little over a decade ago, and they didn't really even build up their launch cadence. They started landing rockets and really removing more cost, increasing accessibility in 2015. Google and Fidelity put a billion dollars into SpaceX in 2015. That was a big year that started to see a lot of increase. And so if you look at that, we're six, seven years into this. When you're making investments into early stage companies, it takes six to eight years for those companies to go through the normal sort of process of growth and be ready for the public markets. So it's coming. We're nearly there. It's pretty exciting. This conversation is more to see sort of like what's coming down the pipe. We're investing at seed. We're investing. We're the first check into these companies. And this is sort of a leading indicator to public markets about where things are going. But now we're to a point where a lot of that stuff's going to be coming on to the public markets, I think, when this next IPO window opens. And it seems like it's slowly starting to crack open now with some more listings. And so we'll see. But um, look, what is available, the trick here in our strategy is to think about this in its totality, right? If I was just to go out and invest in a bunch of infrastructure companies, launch and satellite hardware and these emerging industries, that would be a very uninteresting portfolio from an ROI perspective. Why would you build, do all of the hard stuff, all the heavy CapEx, long timelines to revenue? Why would you do all of that hard work and then not capitalize by investing in the distribution of that data and in the applications that are built on top of it? That's what we're focused on is this broader opportunity. And when you think about it through that lens, you can start to get some really interesting names. If you talk to John Deere, they leverage space technology in a major way. Autonomous tractors today, if you go inside of it, it looks like the inside of a cockpit of like a shuttle, of a space shuttle. And they're not shy to talk about it. They are a space, an application of space technology in agriculture. NVIDIA is talk of the town at the moment. We wrote about this in one of our thesis papers, the GeoInt playbook. In the late 90s, they made GPUs, graphic processing units, widely accessible, which is basically giving rise to all of these AI applications today. And across gaming and 
across enterprise and everything else. NVIDIA is another great name that is powering everything in the space economy from design to operations to everything else. And so there are ways to participate in this if you think about it holistically. And that's what I talk about in the book is, okay, space, right? But you're probably thinking it's this. It's a much, much bigger opportunity. When you start to tie those dots together, you start to see how big this opportunity can be. And here is a playbook for how you can start thinking about deploying. Just thinking about AI and the fascination in the public markets in just the last nine to 10 months and think about how many trillions of dollars in market cap have actually been created. And it is a trillion. If you think about how much market cap NVIDIA has gained just on the excitement in and around the applications of their GPUs and what Microsoft did and what Google did and, and, and the like here, you dig into the space economy, the book, you're not talking about just the stuff that's the landers and all the, the kind of sexy sci-fi stuff. It's a lot of everyday applications and how it's going to work its way into it. And I'll just say this, as you mentioned the thesis paper, if you go to spacecapital.com under the insights, there's a lot, they're all there. There's a lot of educational stuff, a lot of great videos, a lot of great stuff with Chad and his partners. So check that out. You can learn more about space capital there. And then the one thing, Chad, I'm just going to say before I get out of here, because I'm really enjoying this book, I think people should read it. If you're thinking about new themes and markets, you're sick of the stuff that you've been focused on over the last, let's call it 10 years or so. We are going to give away a hundred books of the space economy, capitalized on the greatest business opportunity of our lifetime. That's Chad Anderson's view right there. And he wrote a book about it. So all you have to do, and you know the drill here, people, email at contact at riskreversal.com. And Amanda, leave a review of the On The Tape podcast. Leave a review also of the OK Computer podcast, because we're going to put this conversation also on OK Computer here. We feel our listeners over there are going to love that too. Take a screenshot of those reviews. Send them, Amanda. Contact at riskreversal.com, and you're going to get a, a, a book here. So, Chad, thank you for being here of our Off The Tape segment on The Tape. Great friend of iConnections here. They're a great sponsor of ours. Thank you for being here. Hope you come back. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.